Welcome back to the Planet Podcast. Uh, last week we started a new season of podcast after quite a long summer break. And our first guest was Professor Grace Lasker, with whom we spoke about green chemistry and we combined it with issues like social justice and sustainability. And today we will continue on the theme of green chemistry and so sustainability, but we will dive deeper into what it is and the challenge of making the right choices once the different green chemistry options and the downsides and, and, and the cost for a solution are all on the table. And this shouldn't get as complicated as it sounds, but remember that towards the end of the podcast, you can always call in, that's why it's called call in, and that the chat function, which was not working last week, is working again. So you can write in the chat uh, during our talk, and the chat is uh, the uh, symbol that is uh, top right on, on your screen, those two little, what is it, text uh, text balloons. So with that, I would like to introduce today's guest, uh, Dr. Rick Morgan. He's a process development chemist and a professor of green chemistry at the University of Washington. And he's also a senior research chemist uh, at uh, nanotech, in nanotech at uh, Monumental Metal. And he's also uh, an expert for hazardous clinical waste for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That's a long introduction. Welcome, Rick. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And especially for those listeners who missed last week, um, could you could you tell us uh, why green chemistry is important? And also, how did you get involved in green chemistry? Okay, I'll tell you why it's important. And forgive me for making pop culture references as I as I want to do. But it, it's whether you want to live in the Mad Max movies or the Star Trek movies to me. It's like, which which do you prefer? And, and it, it, it's, it's a little funny to make, say that, but it's, it's no less true. How do you want the world to turn out? Now, I believe, because I'm a hopeless optimist, that all, all futures are going to be Star Trek futures. It's just how long is the lead time? So I think the worst case scenario is we pollute the world and things are terrible. I think if we give it 50,000 years, things will bounce back, right? The, 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 the planet will win eventually. But I will say that, uh, maybe I should say this for later in the talk, is that I love Isaac Asimov books. And his book series, The Foundation, was based on science and you know history, psychohistory, they called it. But what his, his thought was in this book was we can't stop the decay of the galaxy. But what we can do is we can shorten the time, right, that the world lives in a dark place and get back to a better place. And, that's, and they planned for 5,000 years. Right. They planned for 5000 years of decay, but to shorten it. That was his entire plan. And I think about that sometimes. I think, OK, maybe we're off the cliff and we're falling, but let's what can we do to get to Star Trek sooner? OK, that's that's why green chemistry, because we want to all live in Star Trek and we don't want to live in Mad Max. Right. So the second thing is, how did I get started? I didn't. It got started on me. It happened the other way around. Right. So I have been 33 years now, worked in industrial uh, manufacturing, and I've also been in academics. And I've noticed a discrepancy in what academics teaches between what actually happens in industry. Like, because we are very careful in our labs in academia, don't pour things over your head and get it on yourself. Don't up it down the drain. I won't want to go into specifics, but I see a huge difference in how things work in industry. And we're talking milliliters in the lab, and we're talking thousands of gallons in industry. So I thought, well, why am I not putting two milliliters down the drain? in my lab at the university when I'm 
clearly watching people dump hundreds of gallons of stuff down the drain legally, not illegally, but because there's, there, there are exceptions. If you yeah. learn all the, the tricks of the trade, there are exceptions for like wood pulp industry and other things. So I think, well, why, why does this matter if that doesn't matter? Am I just doing this to make myself feel good? Or is this, how can I make a real benefit? And then how I landed in, in teaching green chemistry and in, in proselytizing and, and trying to execute it is I noticed a disconnect about seven years ago. The big, here's the big disconnect, the big mystery is if you are a CEO of a company, you have a responsibility to the board members and stock price and other things that are almost always in direct contradiction to switching to green chemicals or making better choices. So how do you then go against your primary job, which is to make a lot of money and good parts, uh, good whatever you manufacture, and how do you then make the switch to something that's safer to steer steer the ship? The ship, it's not gonna be a left turn, right angle. It's gonna be a slow push. How do you switch that? How do you know it? Now, here's what you do. What don't you have to make that decision? You don't have the information you need if you're typically a decision maker in this world. The information you need is if I, what chemicals can I switch to? Let's say I want to switch to something that consumes fewer resources. You know, there's 12 steps in green chemistry and, you know, a lot of them are associated with not making things worse in the first place. And how do I obey these steps while I still make money and make good parts? And they don't know. They do not know the answer to this problem. It isn't written in a textbook, doesn't exist anywhere, and they cannot sign a check and execute this change if they don't have this information. So I decided to make this information, make a system to provide this information. How do you get it? Well, you can look up some of the data online, but you cannot get all the data you need. If I wanted to make an auto parts cleaner, let's say I'm an auto parts manufacturer, and I wanna make a solvent, and I have a solvent that's creating birth defects, including the environment, costs a lot of money, but I wanna to switch to another one, okay? That sounds good. Which one do I use? What's in the market? My very first questions are, how much does it cost? And does it work as good? How do I know this? Can I look this up in a book? No, you cannot. You will not know how well it works on your parts. Therefore, you need to take this, this parameter space, I call it, of the things you can look up, which is the cost of it, where it comes from, what are the storage conditions, how long, what's the shelf life. You need to combine that data with some experimental data, which is how well does it clean my parts? And what are, what are the things that are important to my company? Do I really want to minimize birth defects or am I, do I care more about the ducks in my neighborhood or is it air pollution that I care? Because you don't get everything. You're going to have to identify and pick some things. And then how do you balance that in a way that's pleasing to a person that usually gives you 17 to 45 seconds of their time, right? Is the person like, how do you as a green chemist in the company communicate this rapidly? And uh, there's a way and, and it, it Thank God there's this play, there's this company called SAS and Jump, which has been the biggest friend to me in my life, although they don't know it. They have been the greatest friend to me because they allowed me to create a platform, to create visually a grid that says, here's all the things you care about on the left. Here's how on the, on the bottom axis and the abscissa is this way and the ordinate says, okay, here's how much they affect these things. And they can make a graph that shows this person who writes a check. Here's what you get. You're giving up this many dollars and you're getting this many fewer ducks killed and you're getting this many fewer birth defects. We think we have to verify it, but these are your trade-offs. Now I am, and from my own experience, I am very, very, very much more likely to get the money for that check. In fact, I'm certain to get it. If I show this information to them, I will never get it 
if I do not show this information. And I believe that this is the most important way to still steer towards Star Trek, steer away from Mad Max because of the one milliliter I'm not putting down the sink at home versus the thousands of gallons they're putting down the sink in an industry. Because yes, collectively 130 million people make a big difference in milliliter at a time, milliliter at a time, but all of the businesses in the world doing this, the amounts they consume collectively make a bigger difference still and more consistently because it becomes a policy. And that's where I, that, that's how I got started. That's a long answer to a short question. So how does that in practice work? If, if you are, you're, you're working on a project and you, you, you collect all these data. So it is, uh, it's a, it's, it works faster. It works more efficient, but it has the downside that it might cause cancer, but that's also on the plus side that it's, it uh, doesn't cause some kind of other disease or leaves the ducks alive in the neighborhood. And, um, and there's the price, of course, and the cost of the product, etc. And what is then the next step? You go to uh, somebody that's in charge of making a decision. And how does that work? Because at the end of the day, you are you, you end up in a very moral difficult dilemma between often between cost and quality etc how, do, how does it work what's your experience there well here's what you do you have to ask the question of these 10 things i'm going to give you a list of 10 things we can care about birth defects air pollution ground pollution algae ducks the warmer and fuzzier the creature looks the more likely you are to want to not kill it and no one cares about sea slugs but everybody cares about you know koala bears for example so you, you say to yourself, okay, what, what, are the, what is on this list? To, give me the three most important things to this company. What, we need to identify this now, and I need you to tell me, and we need to put this in stone. Because the answer can't be everything, because you can never get everything. But we need to make a stand as a company and identify the things that we think are most important. We're going to minimize those, right? Even if it costs us some money. How much money does it going to cost us? That'll come out in the math. But you have need identity. If you don't have that identity, you're going to try to do everything, and you you will only lose if you try to do everything. You have to pick your poison. That that the company that you have to identify your most important things. Now every company might be different. A lot of clothing outfitters, right? It's going to be outdoor environment stuff, like because their their customers are going outdoors. That's related to what they're going to do. But if you're a company like a automobile manufacturer, you have a hundred thousand employees or aircraft manufacturer, it might be your employees' health and safety. That's the biggest thing. Everybody says, my employees' health and safety, the environment, everything's most important to me, but you cannot, cannot optimize for everything. You can only optimize for a few things. And I can give you answers. I can give you data-driven decisions that tell you how much reduction you get, you could or should get in exposure to some carcinogenic compound or some kind of duck killing compound. Uh, and here's what it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you, more, let's say that your material you buy is less shelf-stable, something people don't think about. How often am I going to have to throw it out if I don't use it? Uh, what are the storage conditions? What are the PPE I'm going to have to use for people for personal protective equipment? There, those are all the trade-offs. It's not just how well does it work. But I can tell you one thing for sure. If the viability of the product isn't there, meaning it doesn't do the job that the old chemicals did, there is you are never going to change. It just it, that's a, You're dead in the water. But if I say, look, it's going to work not quite so good, which is I'm telling you from experience, that's the normal thing is that it just it works but not quite as good it's going to be a little bit slower take a little bit longer here are the adjustments you can make but here's what you get you get this you get this other end you get not so many birth defects you this they're very much more likely now i develop cleaners 
uh, myself uh, for uh, electroplating parts. And I, I purposely bought things that are not shelf stable because they biodegrade, which means you can only make so many at a time or else it's going to go bad and you have to throw it away. So now this work, there's this work of keeping track of how much we have and what's the storage temperature and what kind of bacteria get to cover it at night so that it doesn't biodegrade faster. We have to start analyzing for how well it works. Um, so those are some concessions we we had to make when we went to these cleaners at, at, uh, at Modumel. I can tell you another thing that happens is we were very well placed when automotive manufacturers who want to use this technology I developed want to use it. They said to us, what is your green chemistry stance? What is your prospect? They Most people didn't know how to answer this question. They don't know what green chemistry is. They, they just have this big recollection from watching the news. But I said, oh, we're using less energy. We're consuming less of, of these chemicals. We are this, with all these things we're having, I was able to say it really easily. And the, uh, what used to be the Chrysler Corporation, it's now called, uh, I forget the name of the company, Atlantis, I think. It's, uh, it's, uh, it, they said, well, that's great. They were the first, we were the first people that had responded with like a definitive answer to what was most important to us and how we were reducing the things that we wanted to reduce. Surprisingly, very few people apparently do that. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's why it makes a big difference. Yeah, it's, as, as a consumer, I'm a little bit jealous at you because when I'm in the supermarket and I have to choose between different kind of foods, I hardly have any data. I can see what the shelf life is or what is it, the, the expiry date. I can see the price of the product. I can see visually what it looks like if it's if it's not in a can, but if it's something like fresh vegetables or something. But that's about where it stops. Whereas if you, let's say, working for a company or when you're working at, at university, you have all these data, at least you know everything. And then, yeah, you still have the difficulty of making uh, making a good judgment of, of everything that you know. But is there a way that somehow consumers could also get access to, to, to more data and then make the choice themselves? Shall I buy a more expensive product that stays fresh a few days longer, or shall I have something that has a better taste or less impact on the environment, etc. Because the technology that you use, you, you mentioned uh, Jump, uh, GMP, that the kind of technology should also be somehow, yeah, be, be you, you, you could somehow use it for consumers, I would assume. Is, is that Has that been done already? Well, I can tell you, me and my kids do it all the time. So yes, we I've trained my children to to do the very the very thing. Yes. So um, now I I try to focus on large companies because I think that steering. Let, let, for example, let's say steering a ship that's you know laden with compounds and chemicals. If you steer that one percent, it's as effective as steering a thousand people a hundred percent, right? So I, I try to think about it this way. I try to think, of course, obviously there are a hundred, you know, 300 million people at once is a bigger effect. I focus on the other end. Now, as a consumer, you can, you can go like, you can have the decisions made for you, which is not my favorite, or you can go to the, you can, you can make your own decision. So you can go to things like the EPA department of environmental quality. Many of them have lists of products that are already approved products for things like cleaning that's the most common one, car washing, uh, things that are, are drawn from sustainable resources and don't pollute and can, and not pollute's a pretty vague word, but pollute in what way do you think pollute, right? So, but the other way to do it is to go to, one of my favorites is Ecosar, but the, the, the simplest one is ChemSpider. If you go to ChemSpider, you can look up any compound 
that you can think of. And you can put, you can either draw the, the, the compound molecular formula, which is my favorite, but you can just write, if you look at your shampoo bottle, you go home, it's going to say, well, I don't clearly need, I don't, I'm bald. I don't need shampoo. But for those who have hair, if you look at shampoo, there you go. I uh, like, I'm looking at my wife's shampoo. There are like 16 or 20 ingredients on this. I'm like, well, you really just need sodium or sulfate, little sodium chloride, some water, throw some fruit salad in it. And you've got shampoo, right? A lot of this other stuff is, is extra. It's fragrances and other things. So usually one, one rule is fewer ingredients equals better. Typically that's, that's, if you don't have any other rule, Go next time you go to the store, if you live in the United States, look at a bag of Doritos and look at a bag of Lay's potato chips. There are three ingredients in Lay's potato chips. There's sunflower oil, potatoes, and salt. The list of the ingredients in Doritos prevents you from buying a smaller bag because there's so many ingredients that you can't have it. So if you have to use that as a guide, fewer stuff is better. If, nothing, if you've got nothing else, less of it is better. Okay, that's one. Second thing you can do is just go to like Chem Spider and keep a list of the stuff that's that you put in your belly first and on your body second, and then anywhere else in your house third. Anything that goes in your mouth, you should be really focused on that. Anything that goes in your skin, you should be focused on second. Anything that goes on your dog's or cat skin probably later, but anything around your house third. And look up things one at a time. Start with the first ingredient on your shampoo. Look that up. Go to Chem Spider, look it up. And go down the bottom, it's going to have health hazard information. There's another thing called Chem Hat. It has fewer stuff in it, but it, it very it's very simplified. It just gives you pictograms of how bad something is for you. You can look it up. And then go down that list, not all of them every day, but one at a time. Look at the stuff on there. Look at how bad it is. And this way, next time you go to the store, if you decide that it's bad for you, you don't want it, look for another product that doesn't have the what, I, what my kids and I call the no-no thing there and and then try to find that now we also make a lot of our own stuff i we end up uh, we have in the past i don't do it so much anymore but i've made soap and other other products at home just for fun as for experiments but you can certainly do it and uh I, I encourage people to do that look at the first ingredient on the first thing you put in your belly every day and then look at the first ingredient on the first thing you put on your skin every day start there great rule i never really thought about that as, as Air my accent. I'm a European, I'm a Dutchman, and uh, we have quite a bit of trust in the European Commission that kicks out a lot of products that are not allowed in Europe anymore. Um, having that for a market of more than 400 million people, we always hope that that has a, a kind of ripple effect towards other countries, uh, because once the factory is making the product as it is required by European Union regulations, then, well, they might as well use it in other countries too. Um, but I, I guess uh, there will always be um, uh, room for improvement also uh, also in Europe. Uh, they also don't know always. So don't take their – so I was in – you know, we talked. I was in the UK recently, and they have commercials on TV that will say, hey, are you eating this candy? You know, uh, you should try this other thing instead. It's healthier. Or when you walk in the store, you, I don't know if you have meal deals. Uh, where you live like in Belgium or anything, but they are, you're in Canada now, but they have these meal deals. You could go in this, in a grocery store and it'll say, okay, here's for, for five pounds or something. They'll say, you can get a, a sandwich and a uh, bag of vegetable crisps and a water. Uh, but it's only $3 if you get the healthy stuff, right? If it's bad for you, it'll, it'll be, it'll be five pounds or five pounds. It's, it's, you, you pay more for the junk food, right? So they're trying to it's subsidize, I assume, by the government. But I'm reading the direction, the, the ingredients, because I'm like, hmm, 
let's see. You know, I pull it up. I'm like, okay, this is vaguely healthier, but I don't know who's making the decision to give the two pounds different to this. But I can tell you who does know. The person who's writing that list of ingredients has learned how to get the two pound subsidy uh, difference in the sandwiches and the in the crisps. Because I'm looking at this going, well, if this was worded just a little bit differently, um, it would be just as bad as the other thing. So I, I, I the, the government is a great place to start because they have control over a lot of people, a lot of things at once. But I can tell you that the manufacturers of many products have learned to outsmart the government in certain cases. Yeah, often, often that is. And looking at Europe, Europe is very good at giving subsidies everywhere, in in the northern hemisphere, uh, in in this side. And um, but um, yeah, so that that, that, may, that may also be a factor. It's a it's a good one um, uh, to keep in mind. Um, so is um, do uh, do you think that? So we spoke about consumers and we spoke about companies. Do you know that in in, in politics, people are aware of this? That that uh, so much more information is around and so much more can be done, or or is this something that really plays only between companies and consumers? Well, I can tell you that I learned about the jump. We talked about the JMP software, which is if you've never been to their campus in North Carolina, it is a it is a love letter to the environment because you wouldn't think of a statistics. Do you think of statistics as being kind of cold? I do. And as impersonal, like as, as math can be, right? It's, it's the, uh, if, uh, if statistics was a human, it would be a slide rule, right? It's, it's like, it would be like this, right? It wouldn't be warm and fuzzy, but their campus is beautiful, large, huge, there's like a solar farm there. Uh, you walk in, there's, there are samples of minerals and rocks from all around the world. It is, it is gorgeous and, and well done. And they clearly put a lot of attention to it. Uh, but what happened to me, how I got involved in this was that. Is this Temple Hill in North Carolina you're describing or? No, it's in Raleigh, Durham. I don't know the name of the campus. It's their main, sort of their main campus. It, it, it's, it is ridiculously green, right? It is, it is, it's just beautiful. And it, it's, it's part of their culture and they're huge supporters of green chemistry. I, I, I was in an, a, uh, I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan in a conference center and I wasn't, it wasn't a political conference, but there happened to be a, uh, there's a museum for ex presidents in Grand Rapids and they have like the tools used to break into Watergate, some other things there. So I went there, but it happens to be that politicians tend to go to this place too, right? When they're in town. And I overheard a conversation from a group of, of, this was all, these were all young men with ties on and they were saying, look, they, they were talking about how to get information to a politician as rapidly as possible that drove them, give them the most information to make a decision to spend the most amount of money with the least amount of exposure to data. And they showed, and I had already been familiar with Chump or JMP, but I didn't think about it this way. And they were, they were, uh, I got in the elevator with them. I'm sort of craning my leg and looking over. What are they, what are they doing exactly? And one gentleman has laptop open and he was showing the others, like, here's what you need to do is you make this plot with multiple things. And if you're standing and walking next to a politician, you, you throw this in front of his face and you put a pen in his hand and then you say, here's what you're giving. And I thought, well, hey, that's a, that's a great idea. Right? So I thought, why can't this work with businesses too? And I, I was thinking about it myself and I wanted to, I was sort of a little embarrassed to, to catch up with them because they were all talking to one another, but it, it stuck with me. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if the same rule 
of getting the most, because we're talking about what is, what is unique about a politician and a CEO is that they are not going to be experts in their field. They rely, they typically rely on the orbited people around them, the people they put in there. If they're, if they're Saturn, they rely on the rings and the moons, right, to, to tell them what to do. But they always need, they always want to feel like it was actually their decision. They, they're humans too, and they want to feel like they weren't just told by someone else to do. They want to feel like they looked at something and made a, a wise choice that was good for the company, let's say, and the environment. So what does every human in this position want? They want to have a warm, fuzzy feeling. They want to make a decision that's based on data. And they want to have, if it goes wrong, they want to have something to point to to say, I made a decision based on this. And that's why I did it. And that's what you can offer them as an individual. If you give this person these things, they will more likely than not make the decisions that you want them to make. Uh, and I think politicians and CEOs are very similar in that way. Yeah. If we if we look, uh, you you mentioned in the in the at the beginning, you spoke about uh, Star Wars and Mad Max as as two scenarios. Uh, if if you would be in charge of let's say both business and politics and and you could you could change a few things in the world what would you change well if we're talking if i'm in charge of both business and politics then i've now switched movies i'm now in star wars and i'm darth vader right i'm in charge of both <laughs> things at once right so yeah. uh but but that's it well so what you what would i change i would level the playing field so that every every company in the not just the country but the entire world has a desire to make a profit and to to exist and to sustain but they all have to play within the same rules if if one country has an advantage or one company has an advantage that says you don't have to play by these rules because let's say you're a china for example and you don't have to pay um any kind of uh, fees for using somebody else's intellectual property, and you also get to pollute all you want, well, suddenly you can have more profits and pay your employees less. If you're also not interested in human rights, if you, if you, if you alleviate these things, you're gonna succeed, right? No matter how poor of an innovator you are, you're gonna win. If you have to follow the same rules everybody else does, which is to respect human rights, to not steal other people's intellectual property, not pollute the environment, and to draw from sustainable resources, you would you would probably lose or more likely lose. So it draws an art, you have an artificial advantage from this buffer you create around yourself to diminish human rights and to exploit the environment and intellectual property. That's how you can win. You can win, you can win by being the bad guy, right? So if I were in right. charge of this, you couldn't win. Yeah, you couldn't win by being the bad guy if I were in charge. I would have to be the bad guy because I would have to enforce rules that make me uncomfortable. But uh, but because I don't want to be draconian in that way. But but honestly, the, in that case, that would be the way to do it. You would have to you would have to force all companies to play by the same rules. Then you would win by being good, not by being bad. Yeah. And we're now in. Uh, some people will listen much later to this podcast, but we're we're now in early November two thousand twenty-two. Uh, next week, uh, COP twenty-seven will start uh, the the climate um, uh, conference of, of of parties that happens every year. It was last year in in the UK and this year in, in Egypt in Sharm El Sheikh. Uh, one of the biggest challenges for our planet is of course climate change soon after it will be followed in december 
um, in Montreal by COP15. That's also called COP, but it's a completely different organization. That's the one um, about uh, biodiversity. So out of the two or three main problems that we are facing on our planet, uh, climate change, biodiversity, I think pollution is nowadays all, always mentioned as number three, especially with the plastic pollution taking place everywhere, uh, which is maybe the most chemical of the three. Um, what are your expectations? And, 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 and building on this uh, Darth Vader um, kind of approach, what, what, what should... How do we get out of this? Because it's such a mess. I mean, are we on on the Mad Max scenario, uh, and 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 will we not be able to solve it, or will we find wisdom in time? What do you think? Uh, definitely, it's going to get solved, whether we want to solve it or not. It might be in a thousand years. It might be in a hundred years. It will. It will get solved. My, I have. I have a strong sense of optimism that uh, the world will come around. Because if we look at the length of the history of the world, we think about things like the. Have you ever heard the, the poem uh, Ozymandias? Uh, no. Percy Bly Shelley. Uh, I don't know if you can look it up online or something, but there's a there's a there's a poem, okay. and I can't read it verbatim, but it's about uh, some people in I think the eighteenth the nineteenth century eighteen hundreds digging up a statue. And the front of the statue says upon it, "Look upon ye works my works ye mighty and despair." It says on there somewhere. It says that. Look about you. Look everywhere. I think it's by Percy Bly Shelley, Mary Shelley's husband. And it says, uh, and, and, oh, by the way, the, the starting of it says, we came across, across a traveler in an antique land. It's like a desert. It's, it's, they've dug up this statue. And the statue says, look upon all this greatness and, and despair because I've made this giant great world. But it's buried. It's, it's a true story. And they dug this thing up and there's nothing around it. It's all gone, right? Everything's disappeared. And... That's in the Nile Valley near Thebes. What was Thebes? And, but that's, that, all that stuff's gone. Like all the things we see and we worry about losing today is going to be gone someday. And nature has to win because we, if we exhaust all of our energy resources and we don't figure out how to be sustainable, it's bad for us as humans because we'll go through a period of time that is probably miserable and awful, but we've gone through many. Uh, but the world will eventually win. Because even if we poison it for a thousand years, ten, even even if it's fifty thousand years, the world's going to win. It'll come back. What we want to do is play foundation and shorten that gap, right? Even if we're on a downslope, which I think many fear that we are, the slope will go up. We need to steer it up quicker. By I think, and I, I really think this is true. And you're going to please don't hate me for this. We have to force people to do it because if there's an in, if there's a financial incentive to not have even biodiversity, even have watch climate change, even if we know how to fix it and we choose not to do it, that has to cost us something. It has to cost us something today. It can't cost us something in 10 years or 20 years or we won't pay it. We won't pay off our credit card debt early. Right. We will just do it. So the, the cost has to come now. And that can only, I think that can only be implemented from the outside in. I, I think the world has shown us it can come from the inside out, but it doesn't always. And if it doesn't always, it, it's the same as not happening, I think. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. I was just interviewed on uh, TRT, which is like the, the Turkish uh, CNN. That was just half an hour, an hour ago, I think. And uh, and there, the main thing we spoke about was the... Uh, the glaciers that uh, that we are losing. There's now a report that came out from UNESCO, 
and that says whatever we do, um, whether we actually change our act tomorrow or not, um, a lot of the, the main glaciers in the world are gone by 2050. So the ones in, in Yellowstone and Yosemite and in the Dolomites in Italy, etc., and on the Kilimanjaro, they are already lost. So that is the, the, the kind of phase you were talking about. So there are things that are lost. Yes, they might come back in 50,000 years or so, but that, that is already lost. But then the second half of the, of the story is of the same report that um, if we take action now, we can still save about two-thirds of these monumental glaciers in the second half of the century, the ones that we're not losing now. So we are on this downward slope, but yeah, there's, there's hope in, uh, in coming up, and that's, uh, that, that gives a bit of hope, I think. I, I know I, I keep talking about science fiction and it's hard coming from a scientist where I can't really apply the science fiction principles, but I think about this things, right? I was just in Alaska recently and I did visit a few glaciers and saw how much smaller they were than the pamphlets, than the advertising material suggested. And I was slightly disturbed. You know, it, it was interesting to see that. And, and actually just about four days before that, I was, I was on this cruise to Alaska. I was actually in, in Ethiopia, and uh, the 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 I saw things there too, right? You see that the the river is like there's a turn in the river. Uh, you see the river's kind of muddy, piled with bags and trash. The, the the corners of the rivers, as you can see in the distance, are all multicolored because they're trapped with clothing and and trash and garbage. And you see this river meandering through, and it's just it's just awful and dirty. And then you go to Alaska, which is pristine and beautiful. And you think, oh, this is such a relief to see this beautiful. I mean, it's just, you can breathe fresh air. I'm, it's, I'm literally, my clothes still smelled like Ethiopia. I was just a few days later. But then I saw this, you could see where this glacier had been. And you could see very clearly the marks where there were no trees or plants or anything growing where it had, had shrunk. And also see the difference in, because they have, uh, you know, uh, books and pamphlets to take it and look at it. It's. I would say a third smaller than it was even when the photos were taken, which I imagine were 10 or 20 years ago. And I was still, I thought, well, man, I can't catch a break because I'm trying to like appreciate the nature and everywhere I go, I'm seeing these, these, these changes and what, what knobs do I have to turn? I think to myself, what knobs do I have to turn? What things do I have to squeeze or buttons do I have to push money? Do I have to spend to slow this or stop this? Because I, I desperately feel, I feel every problem as a personal problem. I don't look at very many problems and see it as something that I, isn't my responsibility. So if I see any large problem, I usually, I want to, I want to attack it right away. I, I've told my boys as they're, as they're growing up, I said, try to find a big problem in your life because the real joy in life and the real changes you can make are the big problems. Like I said, you think Abraham Lincoln was sitting around trying to think about how to pay his rent and like how to fix his wagon and stuff. He was thinking about how to rejoin the union and to abolish slavery. And he, he had a, he had a very famous quote when he said, Abraham Lincoln said that the, the, the true path North to goodness, isn't on a paved road that you could easily walk or everyone would have walked it. It's a morass. It is going through swamps filled with alligators and snakes. It is a curvy path. It is a fraught with hazard path, but you have to still take the path. You still have to do it. And so I told my kids, I tell them both. I said, look, find a big problem. Don't look for small problems. Find a big problem because you might surprise yourself. And it's not going to be a straight path, but it'll be a path and you can solve it. You just have to do it. 
Fantastic. Oh, that's, that's great. I love this. Let's, uh, let's, I'm looking at, at the audience. Uh, I saw um, Sharon already asking a question in the beginning, but I was kind of ignoring it because we were talking so much. Uh, but if Sharon or anybody else has questions, I will also look in the chat. I don't see anything in the chat except for Amanda saying that my voice is coming in and out, so we may still have a voice problem. I hope I had hope we had solved it a bit. Um, Sharon, um, hi, thank you for for joining. You have to unmute yourself. Yeah, there you are. <laughs> yeah, I I did. Um, no, my elbow just hit the uh, call in uh, earlier, Alex. I wasn't trying to interrupt. <laughs> Um, <laughs> great podcast. Um, thank you for letting me ask a question. Uh, Professor Morgan, um, this is very interesting and I actually um, understood more of it than I thought I was going to. Oh, great. Um, I know. Um, here's my question, Professor Morgan. I, th I believe it goes to the fourth principle. Um, I live in central Arizona and we are the number one producer of cotton in the state and possibly in the US. Pesticides are used during the cotton cycle um, to reduce um, insects attacking the cotton bowl and diseases of the cotton bowl. Um, we're right now getting ready to harvest the cotton, so the cotton has been defoliated again by chemical pesticides. <laughs> so my question is, how does green chemistry play a part in um, the pesticides that are now being used and produced uh, for cotton and other plants that are less toxic to humans, animals, and the environment? And is there pushback uh, for using safer and less toxic pesticides um, by the major crop chemical companies that I know are in Arizona right now, which would be Bayer Crop Science, uh, Drexel, and what are the trade-offs? Thanks. Right. Well, I love this question. I love it, uh, Sharon, because uh, two reasons. One is I'm going to be in central Arizona and surprise in a couple weeks. And I have seen the cotton fields you're talking about driving around. And I also, uh, when I was in undergraduate school, I wrote a, a paper uh, about uh, DDT and how it made its way up the, the, the food chain when I was in a, a chemistry class. So uh, the, the, the trick is to design, I mean, you're talking about the four step, which is I think design saver chemicals or benign or more benign chemicals. And I don't know much about, uh, about the uh, insecticides, but I can tell you this, that we try to identify functional groups in a molecule as a chemist. Let's say there's a a group called XYZ, um, like a carbonyl group or something. We, we try to identify the thing in this pesticide that, that does what we want it to do. And we also try to identify the functional group. It's, let's say it's a carbon and an oxygen together that does the things we don't want it to do, which might be in the case of insecticides, maybe you can give me an example, which is like kill other animals like bees, for example. Right? So we look at this functional groups and we say, okay, what functional groups can we add to this molecule that still do what we want it to do without doing what we don't want it to do, right? Now, a bee is an insect, and we none of us want to kill bees, right? But, every, but I think most people want to kill other insects that might cause harm. So how can you design this molecule and build this molecule? What would that molecule look like? That's step four of the, green, the principles of green chemistry, which is design basic chemicals. And you need a better chemist than me to design that. 
Uh, and then once you do, you have to use atom economy, use energy economy, prevent waste, all those other things. But that you get to start with designing it and getting it to do what you want it to do. And that's how we use the, the everything else is. And once you've designed it, all of the other energy is spent making it from sustainable materials and finding ways to uh, make it uh, consuming less energy and finding ways to get rid of it when, it when it's bad. But I think that that key point is to make that molecule. And I, I believe that those some of those choices exist uh, right now. But I think that they uh, my, my experience is that they cost more money and also uh, are less they don't they're harder to apply and are less shelf stable, meaning you can't keep them out in the sun for long, things like that. I hope that helps. I know it's not a very direct answer. Oh, no, thank you so much. I can't say that I understood all of that. Um, but um, I did grow up on a cotton farm. <laughs> so I um, was, you know, played in the cotton fields. And we had older planes, you know, flying crop the, the, the pesticides over our heads. And we didn't understand what was going on. Um, so I think that this industry should evolve. And you know, as a result, you know, they've done research where, you know, it causes cancer and I have adult onset asthma. So um, anything that can be done like that, to me, it's it's a huge problem, um, you know, for our agricultural communities. And, and I work with a, a lot of disenfranchised people that, you know, they don't have the ability to get out of the way. So thank you so much. You're welcome. And I will say quickly that I worked on a farm when I was young, too, I used to buck hay and, and, and move pipe, and I worked in corn and sugar beets and, and mint, a mint still. And you go home smelling like gum every day, you know, when you work in a mint, <laughs> mint still. But I will say that I remember very clearly the uh, the, the sugar beet. So we made sugar from beets. Uh, when we sprayed this, not with a not with a crop dust, but with a, a spray, a ground sprayer. And I noticed a marked difference in how much insect in, insects were on these sugar beets, which I thought initially was great because I didn't like getting bugs on me either. But I also noticed right away that even as a, as a, as a teenager, that me and my colleagues, uh, other young boys who are, who think we're immune to everything, right? we're not afraid of, of anything, were getting itchy and hot under our skin. Like this is immediate. This isn't mm -hmm. decades later, but instantaneously, our skin was kind of hot and itchy and we couldn't seem to wash it out of our clothes like every time we put the same clothes on and so we kind of joke about oh i hope that we don't grow an extra head tomorrow or something like because as you <laughs> as teens right but we also were secretly sort of like the years later we all said we were secretly sort of worried that something bad was <laughs> happening to us and we did not trust the farmer at all to have our best interests in, in mind when he was spraying for his sugar beets right so i, I sympathize with your your plight thank you so much yeah this reminds me a couple of years ago, I was talking to students in, um, uh, in Boulder, in Colorado, at the, the annual conference on world affairs. And, and I was telling these students that when I was a kid and we went on holiday, that we stopped at gas stations and my father filled the, the tank of the car. And my job was to scrape the insects off the windshield. There were thousands of them. And, also on the headlights, there were so many on them that, that even the lights were not functioning correctly anymore. You had to scrape it off. And that now if I, I, I can drive 2,000 miles through Europe and I have maybe one or two bucks on, on the windshield. Now, I was telling this to these kids. And then later I was talking to a few of them and they said, you were exaggerating. And I said, no, I wasn't. I mean, it was really like that. You couldn't see through the windshield anymore. You had to stop. 
they just didn't believe it. Um, yeah. It seems that every generation that becomes in charge, you know, that grows into into politics and into influential positions in business, they put the thresholds what they've seen in their youth as what is normal. So I remember a bit what was normal for me. Maybe there were even more insects. I guess so. When my grandfather was uh, a young uh, a young kid, um, so that that seems to be one of the things with the changes that we spoke about. That everybody sets a new threshold of what is normal, and that may be in with with chemistry also, or something like you 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 have the norms of the generation uh, that you grow up in. I will tell you one thing, Alex, I had the same experience. I worked at a gas station as a teenager as well, and I washed the windshields. I was this this person, so I had to have a two-step process. I would take a rag from my back pocket. This is back when we had one person washing the windshield, another person pumping, and the person stayed in the car. No one pumped their own gas. I would have to wipe the windshield with a wet rag and let the bugs soak for a minute because it took a little soaking to get the bugs off. And incidentally, this is the gas station, the store from the movie Stand By Me. If you've seen that movie in the 80s, I worked at that gas station. They're going to look for the body. I've seen it. Yeah, sort of exactly. It's it's that store. Is Phoenix I, River. Is, yeah. Yeah. It's really crazy. So, um, but they filmed it at that store I worked at that summer. So we helped with the filming of the movie. But um, but I would scrape the bugs off and I would, and I had these skills. I could juggle the, 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 the squeegees and things like this. And I had the same conversation with my kids. I said, there used to be so many bugs. We used to have fly swatters all over our house because there were always flies. And there were bugs everywhere. And I said, what happened to the bugs? I said, well, I don't, I don't really know what happened to the bugs. But I did have the same experience of explaining to them, I think, that the world has killed most of the insects. Or um, or I just live in a different climate. I don't know. Uh, well, the, the numbers of, of uh, the insects lost is, is, is terrible. I mean, that is, that is uh, the, the percentages. I don't have them in the top of my head now. But uh, the reports I've read is just terrible and then the next thing is the amphibians because they need a lot of these insects so amphibians but especially the insects are are so much worse hit uh, than uh, than anything else i'm looking at the clock i was aiming for 40 minutes so we're already a little bit uh, uh -huh. over time but if anybody still has uh, questions uh, i see a lot of uh, familiar faces there um i now see joshua so now i recognize where the comment of hemp uh, came from um, it's a favorite uh, issue of Joshua who has asked me about hemp before, but I'm not sure if that has to do much with uh, with green chemistry. Um, but uh, if I if I don't see any other questions, I think you and I could could keep on talking forever. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'll, I'll disclose here to the others that we already spoke for half an hour before we <laughs> we. <began. laughs> That's true. Um, if I may. One last question. I would love to ask you. I was planning to do that all the time about the comic books. Please tell me what you're, what, what is it? You're CEO of a comic book cleaning something. What is that? Yeah, like? it's, it's called Immaculate Comics. And so I, another dear, near and dear thing to me that's fully in line with my love of science fiction is love of old comic books from the 40s through the mid 70s, probably. And I really like to restore them. I like to take the wrinkles out of them to bring the, the, to whiten them if they lost color, to add color. And I try to do it subtractively so I don't add anything to the books. And I found there's a wonderful love of science in doing it. I've developed my own cleaner that I make in my garage that I sell to, to wash a comic. I take a comic book apart and wash it in my house. I've built a washing machine to many people's dismay. I have built special tools to help people remove staples, put them back in. 
I've invented so many things and run this business out of my garage. It's called Immaculate Comics, and you can look it up on YouTube and watch me and my hundreds of videos doing it. And I thank you for asking me because it's it's what's it's it's my passion. Uh, you can tell I'm nostalgic Perfect. about a lot of things, right? About the old the, the way things I think used to be is sort of nostalgic to me that I've captured my my youth there. And I think that science fiction and and comic books and popular culture have really they've sort of adapted like they're 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 the real world turned up to eleven, right? It's it's just like real life only more so in a lot of ways because it's like our fantasy about how how things could be, how things could turn out, and it's also our our fantasy about things in the past, how the, seeing them through a, a different lens. And I, I love the, the the cultural references and the actual books themselves. I, because I'm a scientist, when, I, when I've put my mind to seeing a, an old comic book, the paper's brittle. And I think, why? How can I fix this, right? How can I do this? And so those are, and I've put my mind, like I tell you, I see every problem as my problem. And so I'm, I see an old something like this, I feel like I need to, to fix it. And that's where that came from. And it's a very scientific approach. I have a whole channel on it. Thanks for asking me about it. Oh, fascinating. I should, I will, I will actually bring you in, in touch with a friend of mine, Michael, who uh, recently gave um, a speech and, and uh, a talk. And, and part of that was how science fiction of uh, Jules, Verne, um, Jules Verne's story of flying to the moon how that influenced a movie in, I think, 1924 in Germany, how that influenced uh, Werner von Braun, but also the guy that was, let's say, the the, the, the guy, um, uh, the older guy above Werner von Braun, I've got his name, German guy, that influenced his thinking. So the very first designs on the rockets were made on the basis of the movie, on the basis of the science fiction book, it actually, the rocket had a logo that referred back to the movie. Um, and that's, that became the design of, um, of the, uh, of the V2 rocket at the end of Second World War, which was, of course, uh, ultimately the basis for the Saturn V rockets that got people to the moon. So there's this constant line that, that goes from science fiction all the way to, uh, to science. I will, I will send you that because I know you would you would love that. I see that Amanda uh, has has a question. Hi, Amanda. Hello, gentlemen. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, sure can. Joining. Great, uh, great conversation. Um, I, I'm curious um, if there's any work being done in under green chemistry for doing recycling projects. I don't know. I didn't take chemistry, so I'm a chemistry noob. So, so just generally, whether it's green or not. So yeah, I'm curious there if there's thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? The biggest efforts right now are the idea of recycling EV batteries for reclamation of metals, so that they can the metals can be reclaimed because they're trying to get to a way to. It's it's difficult to get nickel and cobalt, especially in lithium. Another one they're 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 destructive to get from the earth most com commonly. And the, the idea of recycling them is, is great. And there's a lot, there's not a lot, I'll say there's some research into going to, to reclamation. Of that. The other one is re reclamation of metals from electronics, particularly gold from uh, electronics like circuit boards. Things. I've done some of that work myself. Uh, it's intensive because you have to masticate, they say, or chop up these parts. And then you have to find ways to get the, 
the metals out, and then you have to electrodeposit or you know other ways to get them uh, from the solution. So those are the two primary ones. Interestingly enough, I did speak to a guy, and you're from Canada, Alexander. So, uh, or you're in Canada anyway. So uh, I do I do know a, a gentleman who worked for the mint because Canada actually makes coins for a lot of other countries besides Canada. They make money for they serve as a mint. I didn't know this. They, they serve as a mint for several other countries. They make for poorer countries. They make the money. Uh, they, they they had a, a system for recycling electronics in the Canadian mint to make coins from the electronics, and that's what they would that's what they would do because they're forward thinking that way. But the other one is EV car batteries, and that's I, I don't want to get too technical, but yeah, you have to chop them up, separate the metals, and then remake the batteries from that. And that's where that most of the energy is spent right now. I think that's not exactly chemistry, but I think it's an allied field. Right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Wonderful. Actually, talk about Canadian Mint. When I go jogging, which I try to do two or three times a week, and I'm, I run for an hour, then I pass the Canadian Mint. Oh, great. At, at least the old building. I don't think it's big enough for everything that you described, but it's it still has the name and it's... Uh, it's uh, next to the to the waterfront of the river. Thank you very much, um, Amanda. Um, I don't see anybody else raising their hand anymore. This is your very last chance, and that is over now. So, um, Rick, I would like to thank you so much. This was wonderful. Stay on, stay on the Zoom, um, and thank you all uh, for listening. Those that are listening now, those that will. Uh, listen later. Thank you, Grace, for being uh, being back here. If you still want hey, to, Grace. Hi, Grace. <laughs> <laughs> Please uh, call in. Um, and, uh, but both of you, both Grace and Rick, thanks so much uh, because you were kind of a, a match together, green chemistry. That was, uh, that was clearly uh, the thing. I'll be back, I think, next week. Um, I will announce it uh, through all the usual channels and on, uh, on Colin uh, itself, focusing uh, more on uh, wastewater. Uh, but I do have to look at my agenda, which uh, talk I will do. Uh, I will do next week. So I'll, I will let you all know. Um, uh, I see Grace is typing. Hi, hi. So uh, thank you, Grace. Hi, Grace. And um, so thanks so much for this. Hope to see you all back uh, back soon. Um, uh, and thank you very much, Rick. And stay online on the Zoom. Then uh, we can. Uh, see Shall you. do. Have a good day, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.